Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, Sad, Confused begins now. I'm Josh Horowitz, and today on Happy, Sad, Confused, it's Halloween week, so we're celebrating with a master of horror. He loves monsters and gothic horror and anything creepy. It's the one and only Guillermo del Toro in a flashback conversation from 2015. Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. That's right, this is a bonus episode for you guys this week, and this is a very old episode, but a really special one. This was the first time Guillermo del Toro ever did Happy, Sad, Confused, way back when, in 2015. And I listened to this one back, and I thought, there's no better guest to talk scary movies in the season that is Halloween. Um, this was on the occasion of his release of Crimson Peak, which was kind of ignored, frankly, at the box office, but was a personal favorite of mine and remains such to this day. Uh, and I think you guys are going to really dig this career conversation with Guillermo way back when in 2015. Before we get to that, let me remind you folks, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you doing with your lives? Every week we give you one, if not two, amazing conversations with the best filmmakers and actors on the planet. Remember to hit that subscribe button if you're on YouTube, if you're listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast to Happy, Sad, Confused. For nearly 10 years, we've been giving you the best and the brightest in film and TV. All we ask from you is that little subscription button. Uh, anyway, before we get to the Guillermo conversation, I want to tease one very exciting thing coming up. Uh, in about two weeks, I believe, we are going to be debuting a new mini-series spin-off, if you will, of Happy, Sad, Confused that I've been working on for a long while. I'm not going to say what it is just yet, but it is a project that is very close to my heart, and I think if you enjoy what I do and enjoy deep film conversations with great filmmakers, this is going to be a really special uh, series for you. So stay tuned. Like I said, now's the time to hit sub that subscribe button because uh, we have a really cool series coming up for you. It's going to be in the Happy, Sad, Confused feed on YouTube and in your podcast feed, so you won't be able to miss it if, if you hit subscribe. Just wanted to tease that. It's coming very soon. We've been shooting a bunch of really cool things, and soon enough, all will be revealed. That's your tease this week. Okay, so some context. This conversation with Guillermo del Toro took place in my little office when we were doing these things in person uh, and doing them off camera. So if you're watching on YouTube, you're not going to be able to see us gesticulating wildly, but you know what Guillermo and I look like. We'll have a still image so you can look at that while you listen to this great conversation. Um, but he has since done the podcast, I think, at least twice since this 2015 conversation. But on this occasion, as I said, we were talking Crimson Peak. But when I listen back, I realize this is a really good one to share because it does capture the, the arc of his career. Um, his early influences, his love of Hitchcock, goes all the way back to Kronos going to Cannes and him hitting it big there. His struggles on Mimic, a little bit on those Hobbit years when he was going to direct that and kind of the lost years of Guillermo del Toro, Pacific Rim, his comeback, uh, and even a little bit on Star Wars back then, which, of course, recently we made some news on Happy, Sad, Confused in our conversation with David Goyer. And you'll hear in this 2015 conversation, indeed, Gamera was thinking about that Jabba the Hutt movie way back when. Um, so there's a lot in this, in this chat to enjoy. I know if you love movies as much as I do, uh, you're going to really dig it. So here it is 
for your ears and for your eyes to an extent. Please enjoy my 2015 conversation with the legend that is. He's a legend. You can't just throw that word around, but you can when it's Guillermo del Toro. Please enjoy this conversation with the master that is Guillermo del Toro. Mr. Del Toro Guillermo, buddy. Senor. It's always good to see you, man. Same here, man. Truly, um, I was telling you before, I'm uh, borderline obsessed with this one. I love it. I truly do. I am obsessed with it, and I love it, too. It's one of my three favorites I've done. Yeah, so that's, uh, which, which are the three? Devil's Backbone? Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth. Depending on the week, they can switch, <laughs> and then Crimson Peak right out. See, I was going to say, like, when you finish a film, and this one you had a while to kind of, like, tinker and get it right, right? <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. And tinker I did. Did you really? Horribly. And to the point of... I honestly, uh, my post supervisor was keep him away. It's like, let it go, Guillermo. We, we did 12, 12 musical sessions on the score, 12 musical sessions. We redesigned the sound three times. I mixed it three times. I color corrected it about three times more than any other movie. Like Pans was, next to this, Pans was the next one. Yeah. And I color corrected the cinematography on this movie three times more. Uh, I recut it, cut it, moved it, tried it, went crazy on the previews, tried things that were much longer uh, until I got it to where I like it, you know? Do you, do you understand the instinct of, of you know, the Ridley Scott and the George Lucas's that tinker even beyond release? Are you, oh, yeah. at this point, are you ready to let it go? Or do you still, when you see it, do you still see yeah, any things? I, I saw it the other day and there's one scene I would cut out, so <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there you go. So, I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm happy to hear that you're, you're pleased with it, as you should be, because I, I'm curious, like, when a filmmaker completes a work that they've labored on for a while, do they see the flaws? Do they see, the, are, they pra- like, are they psyched about it? You seem actually psyched about it and not sick of it, which is a good a sign, yeah, I think. You know, there, is, <clears throat> there was a moment uh, where I really was afraid for my sanity. Why? <laughs> no, what was happening? Because I kept, I, kept, I kept coming back and saying, I'm going to need to open. We were printing the final the final reels, you know, and I would say to the post supervisor, have you printed reel five? No. Okay. We're going to open it again and I'm going to take this line of dialogue out. Right. Really? I go, yeah. And, and, and to the point of uh, obsession, you know? It's funny. I mean, you, you, you begin the film, I believe literally the first line of dialogue is what goes surreal, right? Yes. And it, I, I feel like it's kind of... Um you know, without ruining stuff for the audience, it's 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 disingenuous it, to me. I, I don't think of it as a ghost story. I feel like it it, it's it's a story that has some ghosts involved. It's exactly what she says to the publisher. It's not a ghost story. It's a ghost a story with a ghost in it. Yeah. And and look, gothic romance in general is very important to understand. Gothic romance is not a horror film. Is is atmospherically like a dark fairy tale with supernatural atmosphere and elements and scares, but it doesn't function as a horror film. And at the same time, gothic romance is not pure romance. Yeah, it, it, gothic romance was born out of the will to marry love and death. Yeah, and 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 a nostalgic sense of loss. So it's a hugely romantic movie, but with a lot of darkness. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is like you describe yourself, and I think it's apt. Like you're not a cynical filmmaker. No, you're very much a romantic. Yeah. that happens to just all also love darkness and there's some yeah. horrific imagery in all your films but it, yeah. it comes from a romantic place which is an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. I get high on my own supply. <laughs> you know, I truly truly use my product and I, and I, and I feel that uh, even, even in something when you approach an idea as insane as Pacific Rim, yeah. Giant Robots Ryan Monsters, I do it straight. I believe in giant robots. I believe in. I'm not being ironic or, or postmodern. Yeah. Same with gothic romance. I think uh, the movie has this 
heightened tone of melodrama. Right. And I went went for broke for it, you know. Plus, you threw in Tom Hiddleston's rear end. Yeah. Well, he was very very eager to throw the rear end. <laughs> he suggested one day. How about I just drop trout today? Can I be today? naked for the breakfast scene? No, Tom. <laughs> I gotta wait for the love scene. Can I be naked in the waltz? No, Tom. Wait for what the. If love we have the scene? subplot, the subtext that I'm, I'm a nudist throughout the entire film. I, no, think, I, work. I think he was toning those buds. Right. Uh, yeah. He is a great romantic hero for this kind of a thing. Yeah. He fits this to a T. He does. And, and uh, look, I can tell you two or three ways to make Crimson Peak eminently more of a commercial ride that I don't take. You know, like you give the ghosts a moral or religious weight. They are evil, they're demonic, they're whatever. I, I refuse to do that. The ghosts are used in a really interesting way that relates to Devil's Backbone, actually, yeah. if people watch them. And, and the other thing is, instead of making the villains so hateful at the end that you want them to die, you create an empathy. And you know, little by little, and the same was in Devil's Bag, when you give them their most humane moments as the movie advances, and it makes for a more moral gray area, sure. but I'm, I'm really happy with that. Are, are you a believer yourself in supernatural and ghosts? I have. I mean, I have experienced that, and I believe. Because, uh, and everybody in my family, most people have experienced that, you know? I don't know if it's in the water, but... <laughs> In Mexico, it's pretty more, it's more <laughs> useful to encounter the, the strange and the supernatural. What's the one that sticks out? Is there one incident that you think of? Well, the one, the one that sticks out was when we were scouting The Hobbit in New Zealand. I, I always go, when I stay in hotels, I look for the haunted room. And in Waitomo, and you can do it yourselves if you go to, to Wellington on New Zealand, in Waitomo, there is a hotel, the Waitomo Hotel, and there is a room, I think it's 12C, mm. uh, where is famously a haunted room, and, and it was closed. The hotel was closed for the season. It was eight of us, and the manager opened the hotel, really angry that they were making her open the hotel, gave us the keys and said, go. And I said, can I get the haunted room? And she said, oh, there you go. I go, I'm watching The Wire. I'm watching Omar and Stringer Bell, like doing a parlay, you know? Sure. Nothing haunting about it in my Mac, and all of a sudden, and it's in the movie, in Crimson Peak, I hear a horrible murder in the bathroom. Horrible. A woman... Like screams? Just like... A woman screaming. <laughs> like you have never heard those screams. Huge pain. And then I get up, I look, I trace it to a vent in the wall. I listen, and it's a vent that goes to the cellar of the building. I get really jittery, but I sit down, ready to admit Stringer Bell into my life again. <laughs> And I hear a guy sobbing loudly with regret. And then I put the earphones and I watched the whole season. This is the only time the wire is like a respite. It's like, yes, it's like yes. it's a nice place to go. <laughs> Whoever got killed, I oh, didn't care. It's a romantic comedy no, now. Because, because the, room had a, the room had a huge window, a balcony. And I swore, I was saying, I didn't want to go out into the corridors. I said, I don't know where the other seven people are. <laughs> and I'm not going to be running like Danny in the tricycle <laughs> looking for who is there. And I, I swore that if I lifted my eyes from the computer to the yeah. balcony, there was going to be somebody oh, knocking God. slowly in the window. <laughs> I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And the next day you left the Hobbit project. This was an omen. <laughs> <laughs> no, the next, I didn't sleep. And the next day we, we continued scouting up north. <laughs> You mentioned uh, sounds, and uh, I mean, 
like the sound design in this film is impeccable too. I kept yeah. thinking of like the all those strange noises in a house that creep yeah. you out, and everybody has this growing up or to this day. What what are the banal, ordinary sounds that get under your skin? Are there any? Are there like sounds that kind of creep you out just for? Well, there's uh, believe it or not, one of the ghosts. Uh, I what we did is we grabbed the cooing of a baby. And it is very creepy to put it on top of a skeleton figure, right. for example. The buzzing of a fly freaks me out for some reason <laughs> it's in the movie. And then there is a, a low frequency that, is, uh, that affects us as mammals. I think it's a frequency that we used to sense as earthquakes or volcanoes. So it's ingrained in our DNA to react with fear to that low frequency, so yeah. that freaks me out too. So since we have some time, I want to go, go back a little bit and, and jump around to the career. We've talked many times over the years, but this is kind of like, this is this is your life, Guillermo del Toro. I want to go back to the beginning, okay? So like, who was the biggest influence on your life, like growing up in terms of like pop culture? Who did you learn your, ta who, who did you inherit some tastes from or some proclivities towards? Well, look, I, I studied very carefully Hitchcock. I, you cannot see it in my work, but I studied Hitchcock a lot. I, I liked that he was Catholic and repressed and fat, but also I loved that he really could verbalize what he was doing and it didn't get in the way of the work of art. I loved that. I liked, I liked that he seemed to be a reflexive artist that could articulate what he was doing. Uh, huge influence, George Miller, for example, strangely yeah. enough. I mean, I still emotionally, my favorite movie of all times is either Frankenstein or The World Warrior. And if the world was burning, I would probably grab The World Warrior. <laughs> you know, it, 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 As a how-to manual to survive the apocalypse? Well, or I remember the same weekend, I saw The World Warrior and Blade Runner. And I came out of both instances transformed. Yeah. And, and, and the, I was in Vegas. And in the roller, I came out and I laid next to the pavement to see the grain of the pavement. I mean, I think that movie transformed a lot of people of my generation. Yeah. Same with Blade Runner, man. And when, when I think I, I saw you last, we actually, I think we mentioned Fury Road. I think we were both obsessed yes. with what George was able to do on that one. At that age. Uh, that's what, oh, that's what I was going to say. It's like, you know, in recent years, you've seen people like Scorsese and yeah. you've seen George Miller. Oh, Wolf of Wall Street. Who are, or, or, you know, they're directing like their 25-year-olds that yes. have never directed yes. before. Yes. Is that, I mean, is that something that, that you worry about? Like, how do you, how do you like steer yourself towards that as I, opposed to running out of I, ideas? I have and, the great advantage that I was directing like I was 70 when I was 28. <laughs> You're going in reverse. You're Benjamin Buttoning. I'm Benjamin Buttoning, yeah, yeah. I think that is beautiful because there are, uh, when you have people that are in love with the craft and you sense that these are people, George Miller is a fully undomesticated animal. It's a tiger that has not known a cage. Right. You know, and I love Mad Max was the stories about schedule and units and yeah. he just went for no, it. It felt like, like Warner Brothers just gave him like $150 million, sent yeah, him to Namibia, yeah. and he just yeah. brought back this amazing piece of amazing art. Amazing piece of art. I mean, and it's, it's, it's almost Max de Soleil, you know, right. like balletic and acrobatic and, you know. Totally. Yeah. So uh, when you're growing up, my math also, like you mentioned Blade Runner and Road Warrior, Star Wars came out probably when you were like yeah. 12 or something. Yeah. Or something. Does that naturally blow the brain off of uh, oh, Guillermo yeah. del Toro? Well, what happened is I came out of, uh, I went to the first showing, I think it was 10 a.m., and I went around the block and I went to the second showing, and I went around the block and I went, <laughs> I went to every showing that day, consecutive. And because it was when nobody still, it was not, people were not saying you gotta see it. Right. The world was much slower before the summer movies. Right. And I watched it all day long. And I, and I was dying to get a toy 
It was like <laughs> surgically implanted in me to want toys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's because George, George did, for the first time in an efficient way, a future that felt used. Like even Kubrick with 2001, which is impeccable and perfect. Yeah. It's a beautiful movie, but everything is, is new. Yeah. Oil drips are not there. And I think George broke that mold, followed almost immediately by Alien, Ridley Scott, yep. who, who made it truckers in space, you know, with yes. oil drips and bad repair jobs and steam coming out. I mean, I think that made uh, science fiction real, yeah. wearing it down. Before that, it was people in tutus, or, uh, you know, speaking in strange tongues with shiny apparatus and lights. This is the moment. It was lived in. It was, yeah, it was yeah, lived yeah. in. Yeah. I mean, you know, we talked how, like, you've been offered virtually every kind of comic book franchise at various yeah. points over the career. Is Star Wars a universe that, like, is too sacred in a way that you would want to play with? Have you talked to them you at know, all? I, I really, I feel strangely more and more inclined uh, lately uh, to go and do more strange stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, do stuff that is a little more key. A little more quirky. I don't know. I, 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 when, when I spoke to them, I spoke with John Knoll about it, and I said, if I ever do one, I would love to do Jabba the Hutt's uh, Scarface. Right. You know? <laughs> His ascension in the crime family. Totally. Know? But it's not, it's not a plan. It's not, I'm not announcing <laughs> We're please. Don't pick it up. It's, but it does uh, feel like, yeah, like I wouldn't pick you necessarily to do like episode nine, but yeah, I feel like you could rather like give monsters. you. Yeah, you should give your flavor to some side bizarre story. I, I just love monsters. Man. Yeah. And Java is uh, A, basically my same shirt size. <laughs> and second, I love it, man. Um, jumping around a bit, I, I refreshed. I watched Kronos last week for the first time in a long while. It still holds up. It's an amazing piece of work. When when that came and you got a lot of accolades off of that, yeah. I believe you were celebrated in Cannes for it. Yeah, was that we won the, the Critics Week? Yeah, was that a relief because it was like you've been building towards this? And what happens if it comes out and no one cares? <laughs> I tell you, I, I went to Kronos. I went to Kronos. I was twenty seven, twenty eight, and. Our promotional budget for Ken was 10 posters and a roll of scotch tape. <laughs> and I said to, to my wife, you think 10 posters would be enough? She says, I think more than enough. <laughs> we come out of the plane. Ever the optimist. We were come out of the plane, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in the last section here is floating over the bay with a sort of shotgun. A giant billboards. And I go, I go restaurant to restaurant saying, can I glue my poster in your window? <laughs> yes or no? And I glue the posters. And then I say, how many movies are in Critics Week? And they were like a hundred and, and all of them were nominated for the prize. Yeah. And I said, all right, let's enjoy the song. <laughs> and then we win. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it, it changed my life. You know, two times I felt that moved. The other time was when we finished Kronos with a, we asked for a loan personally of a quarter of a million dollars on a 20-something-year-old. And my house was a guarantee, blah, blah, blah. And when we won a contest where the first prize was like a hundred and something, I stood there with the giant check, like Miss Universe, <laughs> crying and saying, thank you, thank you. And, and those are, I mean, these are the beginnings, and the beginnings are very delicate. Yeah. I think it never stops being delicate, but the first and second movie are the hardest. Yeah. If the first one's good, 
then everybody says, let's see what he does on the second one. Merciful for me, I did mimic. So that you went we, through it. Between I those, you had both ends of the spectrum. That's just like, there you go, guys. So, but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, the second one is difficult. It, clearly, and it was for you. I mean, there was a lot going on. I mean, in your personal life, too, that was around yeah. the time when your dad was... My dad was taken for 72 days. An insane yeah, story. Yeah. So, when did you know that that project was going to hell? That mimic? We, yeah. Oh, you know, I got I got the sense of it uh, one day when when I got into a conference call. No, we were in a conference table, and uh, Michael Phillips, one of the producers, for the longest time they were bark beetles that that fed on the on the trees of Central Park and mm -hmm. they propagated a disease through the air, blah blah. And all of a sudden, Michael Phillips says, "Why do we make them cockroaches?" And I just felt this is the end. That's it. And then everybody said, that's a great idea, New York. And I said, listen, I said this. I really did. I said, from now on, no matter what we do, we're going to be the giant roach movie. Oh, no, 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 are you wrong? This is very... And what did we, what were we? <laughs> the giant roach movie. Would you ever work with the Weinsteins again, or is that too much? You know, we have a friendship. I mean, yeah. we get along. We see each other. Is you know, I never say never, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I part of me loves Bob, and I love Harvey. Yeah. I really get along with Harvey. Since then, do you feel like you've... It seems to me, looking at what you've produced since then, you really haven't made any compromises. Like, Do you, no. do you ever feel like you have had to make a compromise artistically on any of your projects? Never again, never again. Every movie, if you like it or hate it, is my fault. Yeah. You know, I think that from then on, I've been free. You reference, and I don't want to go into externally exploit what was a personal, you know, hardship for your entire family, but your, the incident with your dad. Is that something that colors, though, your work, you think, in any way? Does it, I know you've never, you've decided never to kind of like do a story exactly, about no. it in any way, but do you feel like it informs any of your work in any way? I don't know how. I mean, it probably does. I mean, look, the fact is I can explain my movies to a certain degree, but that's my reading. The movies have or must have another reading yeah. that somebody else need to do if they're interested. I'm not, you know, I, I, when people say, oh, you know, you classify them this way and maybe it's a simplistic way or not, but that's how I articulate them. Yeah. They must have a second reading. I mean, there is a, an extreme preoccupation with death, of course, but I, I'm not sure it permeated, it made me a better person, that's for sure. How so? What? Just in appreciating? Well, it's weird because uh, until my dad was kidnapped, I had his shadow over me in a big way. Like I was his son. He was a very famous man. Yeah. He was a big man. And, and then when he came out, I, I was a man and he was a man. Just another guy. Yeah. And, and I loved him, but he was not this uh, childhood giant. Sure. It was a guy that, that I loved, you know, so it was very different. What, what about having kids? Does that change? I mean, certainly your. <laughs> Everything. You're, well, it certainly doesn't feel like your films have softened in any way. No, but, but I, actually, I, actually, uh, I actually became incredibly sensitive to, to the, the uh, female protagonists. To, to actors, to actresses, to what they do in my films. If I didn't have my kids, I wouldn't have been able to do Pan's Labyrinth. I wouldn't have been able to do uh, Crimson Peak, which is incredibly female-centric, sure. you know? And, and I'm very aware of the, of the power of, uh, 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 of my, my wife, my daughters, is just their power is so strong. And I, I, always, I, I always wonder how can any artist represent women 
in any other way but strong because everybody around me, my mother, uh, everybody, all the women I know are, are strong and powerful and full of a, a core that we lack. Yeah, yeah. you've got, you got two great performances in this one, Mia and, and Jessica. I know it's a great acting stretch for her because in real life she's always smiling and in this film I don't think she smiles once. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, I, I made it very clear to both of them, you're going to represent two sides of love. Mm -hmm. And two sides of love, not not towards a man, just two sides of an understanding love, and 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 they need to be fully convinced of that each of them is right. Sure. Like each of them needed to be the protagonist in their in her own mind. You know. We talk about not making compromises because uh, I think of Hellboy, where you really stood fast with your your soulmate, yeah. Mr. Ron. Perlman. Another eight years. <laughs> and and he and he was someone that was not necessarily the studio's pick, to say the least. When I used to say I used to say Ron Perlman, they say the owner of Reblin, <laughs> no, no, the actor, the guy. We'll get the Alan Barkin in the, in the yeah. thing too. It'll be yeah. perfect. Yeah. No, it was, it was but they were like Vin Diesel, right? Did they ever? Did you ever Nicholas consider Cage, it? Vin like, Diesel, uh, The Rock. You know? Did they make a compelling? for any of those? Did you were you tempted at all? No, no. I mean, I, I, I really, I just said, look, uh, I, I would tell Ron, I would tell Ron, I'm going to take the meeting, but don't worry. Mm -hmm. And then I would take the meeting and say, I, I'd rather go with Ron. And then every time they would come back, I had a meeting with a super powerful uh, production produ producer, and he said, your movie's green lit, but it's not going to be Ron Perlman. That's all I'm asking. Same script. And I said, this is not my movie. I mean, and I always had this certainty after Mimic. See, Mimic did that for me. Mimic taught me the most powerful word in the English language. No. <laughs> and, 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 yeah. and, and the thing is, at the end of the day, your name is on the movie, you're responsible. You can tell stories or you can, I can tell you, oh, that needs you. If you didn't bail, if you, did, if, you, if you stayed and your name is on it, don't tell me, oh, I went, sure. you, are the, you own the crap. <laughs> the last couple of years at Comic-Con, you've, you've uh, pulled the audience on Hellboy. Ron's been actively <laughs> trying to get yeah. this going lately. Yeah. Has the studio expressed any interest? Is it all from you guys? Like, is there any? The last serious conversation I had about a Hellboy 3 was with Ron Perlman at a coffee bean in Ventura. <laughs> it doesn't get any more official than that. <laughs> That's how movies are green. That's life. practically green. <laughs> so, you know, it was Ron with his <laughs> vanilla frappuccino about, what, four weeks ago? Right. I mean, I adore that guy, man. I mean, he really is my brother, and I would love to do it. I would love to do Hellboy 3. And I, I frankly, honestly, I, uh, part of me is maybe not savvy enough, but I understand why they do it, why, because the two Hellboys made a lot of money on DVD and Blu-ray. Right. They made enough money theatrically, but the DVD and Blu-ray markets are gone. Yeah. Uh, but I honestly think I may be deluded that there is a, the character has grown into a, a, an audience that is that really wants it. Well, and also the international markets have exploded, and I feel like yeah. that's a character that transcends can, can transcend. I, I mean, I, I would do it in a second, but no, no one's no one's knocking. And Ron <laughs> okay. is on this uh, almost uh, it's a good crusade. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't get in his way. I don't. I, I, I tell you, he, I'll do anything for that guy, man. In, in the course of my being at MTV, it kind of coincided with what was probably a frustrating period of time for you. I mean, we were talking a lot during yeah. the development of the Hobbit. 
it, et cetera. And, Two years, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's that like... Mantles of Mather right after. And yeah. so the, that, there will always, for good or for bad, there will always be that, what, five or six year gap in your directing resume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how were you able to reconcile that? Because that must have been the greatest source of frustration for you. It feels at times like you, you've been cursed as, <laughs> as yeah, a filmmaker yeah. in well, order, the, more the, than others. The, real, the reality is that my projects get reported and announced yeah. more than others. Like I can, I can tell you the three movies that Alfonso tried and didn't do in his six years between Children of Man and Gravity. You know, he was going to do one called A Man and His Shoe, right. A Boy and His Shoe, and another one that was about a bunch of teenagers and blah, blah, blah. And they don't get reported. For some reason, I get reported, <laughs> I get announced, and then I, I have to own the fact that they happen or not happen. But yeah. it happens to everyone. I mean, the gap exists... Uh, there, but I kind of felt good about the gap because I co-wrote three novels, produced three films, sure. produced two animated films. I was not exactly, no, exactly. sitting on my laurels and co-wrote uh, the trilogy, you know, and, and, and I, I designed uh, my two Hobbit movies completely, you know, as much as I could, and I left all that, all that there, but I, I actually, the thing that hurts for me is Mountains of Madness. Yeah. That one hurts because that's a, that's a horror movie. Like Crimson Peak is not a horror sure. movie. Now, Mountains of Madness is a horror movie. It's, it's, it was going to be a scary movie and a beautiful movie. And infamously, you were like a week or two away with like Tom Cruise attached to all was, of it. I was yeah. with Jim Cameron producing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, that in the 80s with Karolko in a second, you know? <laughs> so any movement lately on Mountains of Madness? Is, there, is that I, one of those things? Again, like, like the coffee bean, I had, uh, <laughs> okay. I had dinner with Jim, and he said, what are we going to do about it? Right. And, you know, Don Murphy and Susan Montford, always great allies, always keep it alive. And, yeah. You know, what I say is, let's do it when it's absolutely sure, because I honestly, I don't want to be dramatic, but it, it hurt a lot. Yeah. And I don't know if I could be disappointed on that project again. What, what, what about feelings for The Hobbit at this point? Have you ever, have you sat down and watched the, the three? No, no, I haven't. And, and, and Peter and I are in a great uh, relationship. We, are, we have a very clean uh, relationship and communication. We're very friendly. And I think it's a sign of respect for me. It's, it's almost like, uh, you know, watching footage of your ex-wife on the beach. You know, exactly why do you want to watch? If it's good, right. it's bad. If it's worse, it's worse. It's, sure. I mean, you, and there's no, no upside to it. And I respect and love his uh, work as a filmmaker. And, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather be happy that I was part of it. Sure. So Pacific Rim, which was the, the largest in terms of scale of a mm-hmm. film that you've done, was it at all difficult to kind of retain kind of like your creativity, your control over that no. as the scale it, it exponentially grew? Nope. That movie is was fully in my control. No, it feels totally, it, it's like really, real compromised really, in any I, way. <laughs> I hate to not have great anecdotes, but that movie, if you hate it or love it, I, I, I did it. And, and it was great. It was really hard to, to gauge the marketing of that movie because uh, I always felt that the robots were pushed to the front and the monsters were not, they were almost kept like a secret. Sure. You know, and I think the whole concept what attracted me was monsters and robots. That's what made my 11-year-old mental light bulb go up. Right. And and you know, I'll never, I'll never, uh, I'll never know uh, exactly if it could have been different. Uh, it was, you know, a lot was made about the tracking, and tracking doesn't mean popularity; it means people knowing about it. Yep. We tested incredibly high. We got a great cinema score meaning audiences were connecting, but no one knew. 
I mean, when the movie was opening, we were below Grown Ups 2 in terms of awareness. Right. Now it's awareness, and that's, that's, that's a thing that worries me because I would have loved for people to know more about it. Well, it's a, it's a crazy world when, like, what a film grosses, like, what, around 400 globally. 411, and yeah. it's a gray area whether you get the green light or not for a sequel. Yeah, 411 four, four, uh, is pretty good for... Seems again, nice. It's Seems still, it's still my, my highest grossing movie, you know? And a, an original property. I mean, that's yeah. an achievement. And, and, and uh, you know, Legendary always, uh, you know, the reason why they started Pacific Rim 2 is they showed me, look, we've made more money than... This, this, and this huge franchise's first movie. Sure. The fact is, what we need to do on the second one is you need to use everything we learned and make it for as tight a budget as you can and, and go for it, you know? So, as we sit here today, I know in the last couple of days it's been talked about whether this is a Go project or not or it's on, on the shelf. It's, it's, certainly, it's certainly not my next movie. It's definitely not. No, because uh, with the push, you push, you push the release date, so I feel compelled to go and do something small and weird. <laughs> you know, and then because I need I need uh, like a, a breather and a and a little, little uh, more madness in my life. Yeah. <laughs> but but in three weeks we are delivering a budget and a schedule. Yeah. Uh, and a, and a new draft of the screenplay, and then the studio knows how much it costs, what is it about. And then they'll decide if they go ahead or not. Is is the small weird one something specific? Because you had mentioned doing like a black and white thing that was. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've learned, and you know, I've I know, learned I know. it through the years. You want to make God laugh, tell him what your next movie sure. is. <laughs> you know. Talking to filmmakers, you, you talked about Hitchcock, you talked about George Miller. You've mentioned before, and every great filmmaker would mention him, Stanley Kubrick as an influence. Kubrick, Cameron, Buñuel, uh, Spielberg, uh, Polanski, um, uh, Buster Keaton, mm -hmm. Chaplin. I mean, Who, who's the filmmaker that, that's no longer with us that you wish you could bend the ear of a little bit? Who would you want to talk to? I would to? love to have met Hitchcock or Buñuel. Yeah. I mean, they, they are really, really people I find very interesting as as people, you know? What's what's your favorite Hitchcock film? Depends on which side of Hitchcock. Hitchcock yeah. The great action Hitchcock is either 39 Steps or North by Northwest. The great melodrama Hitchcock, I would say, is notorious. Mm -hmm. The great sort of uh, Americana Hitchcock that defines Hitchcock is Shadow of a Doubt. So. Without, yeah. without a doubt. <laughs> you know? uh, or Strangers in a Train. Sure. Uh, his uh, gothic romance, in a strange way, is not Rebecca, but Suspicion. Uh, and one of my favorite late uh, year films is Frenzy. And, and my favorite film growing up of Hitchcock was The Birds or I Confess. So, I mean, I really... There's something for every mood. <laughs> there, it is. And, and Hitchcock is... Hitchcock is not a filmmaker. Hitchcock is cinema. Yeah. It's the whole of cinema in one single author. Do you, I mean, do you feel, it, it, it's, it's kind of fascinating to think like cinema is a very young art form still yeah. and, and, and evolving exponentially. And we've talked over the years about video games and you, and you are a proponent. You know, you've said before that this is an area where um, creativity is there really exploding. Be, yeah. There will be, yeah. I mean, what, what do you, do you worry about the cinematic experience, about will it look the same in 50 years? Will, it, will people be going to theaters together? And well, it's, it's like owning a horse stable and being worried about automobiles. <laughs> I mean, progress is progress, isn't yeah. it? I mean, language evolves, art evolves, and, and it evolves with technology. So we are, we are facing a change, no doubt about it. Now, uh, 
I say, if everybody keeps making great movies like Miller and Scorsese uh, and Alfonso and you know, Alejandro, everybody, you know, I, I happen to think another one is Ridley Scott for me. Ridley Scott, I'm, I'm maybe in the minority, but I'm a huge fan of The Counselor, mm -hmm. and I've seen it probably 30 times. Oh, that's a crazy, amazing movie. <laughs> I know it, I know it perfectly and so forth. So, you know, just, I think everybody should keep making the best movies they can, and the art form will change. Now, one day, one day we will be all people that did operetta, <laughs> for sure. Because that's that's in the cards. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned um, Ridley. I just saw The Martian, which is like talking about a filmmaker pushing himself. I mean, f from a visual standpoint, of course, it's it's amazing. It's got more humor than virtually any f of his films ever. And yeah. to sort of see somebody pushing themselves in an area that maybe people don't think of themselves mm -hmm. uh, them for. Like, is there is there a genre that you appreciate as a fan that you don't necessarily feel like you have the tools to excel in? Oh yes, many. I mean. <laughs> of course, I mean I would uh, musicals. <laughs> musical, I would. Yeah. I mean, but but uh, let, can I make a parenthesis there? Because uh, another movie of him that I admire enormously is Prometheus. Yeah. And in the same way that I battle very much to say Crimson Peak is not horror, it's gothic romance, blah blah. Prometheus is one of the greatest adventure movies of the of the last. Two decades. Why do you think there's so much hate? Because I actually agree with you. I really enjoy it's an Prometheus. Movie. It, it happens in, in terms me, of Alien, and they just it was it, that. It's like it's like a Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, Four Feathers, uh, Joseph Conrad scope adventure. It's yeah. an amazing. It happens to be in space. It happens to be in the universe of Alien. Yeah. But it's an adventure film of people breaking molds and going places that they shouldn't be. It's really fascinating, and I. I just think the guy is, is, is amazing, and, and, and I think he's getting better and better, and his filmography includes at least, what, 10 titles that you would kill oh, for, absolutely. 15 yeah, titles yeah. that you would kill for? Well, for you, what, what, what stimulates your creativity? Like, what's, 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 what helps you kind of get the engine going when it's not... Uh... A Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it, is it going to Never see a movie? Failed. Is it going to see a movie? Does yeah. that get you going? Yeah, I think that when you go see a movie that, that is a staggering, uh, I just saw Revenant. Oh, did you? you? And it's a staggering. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Yeah, and uh, when you see a movie, it, it, it sort of, that moves you to tears about the, the craft and about the medium and about the humanity. Yeah. It's so great, and I, I think that you... You, it's not that you hold to yourself to those standards, but you can certainly aspire to them. Sure. When, wherever you fall, uh, whether you are a chapter in cinema or a funny footnote, you always need to dream and be in love with the medium in that way. And mm -hmm. I think when you see a movie that beautiful, that powerful, you come out transformed. Do you have, a, uh, in terms of franchise filmmaking, a favorite franchise, one that does elevate on a... Uh, systematic basis, like do, do Bond films do it for you? Do any of like the comic book ones do it for you that, that, are, that are working on that you, level you know, of art? I, I like the Bonds. I do like the Bonds. I, I happen to enjoy the Mission Impossibles a oh, lot. Great, you know? yeah. <laughs> I, think that, I think that it's they are becoming more and more the personality of Tom Cruise, you know, like they, he has, now he is that brand in a beautiful, yeah. beautiful way, you know. They're kind of like Bond of the 60s, they're, they're kind of like, they're they a are, they, they are, and they are uh, physically, and, and they're very muscular, they're very whimsical, Yeah. you know, I think that the whole man who knew too much, uh, concerto, imagine the last one, you know, right. the assassination in the 
theater was. Oh, the opera house sequence is amazing. Beautiful. And, and, all, <laughs> and I'm not saying old fashioned as a, something to decry. It's like a, like a Stanley Donnan or Hitchcock mm -hmm. choreography, really beautiful. You yeah. know? Is, um, did you hear the recent comments by, that Spielberg made about the superhero genre saying it's like cyclical, like the Western? He, he thinks it'll, it'll go away and it'll come back and it's just the nature well, of things. I, I think that things, rather than go away, things ebb and flow. Yeah. Like the Western's never gone. Yeah. Horror, I mean, for us, that, like, like I'm in horror, I'm 50, and in my lifetime, horror has been dead four or five times. Right. <laughs> and horror has been the hottest thing six or seven times. Right. So it's ebb and flow. I think everything is, is ebbing and flowing, and no matter what genre, if a movie has purity and sincerity and power, it's going to... Uh, you know, flow to the top. You, know? you came close to getting uh, doing another comic book thing in terms of Justice League Dark, mm -hmm. um, and, and I know we've talked about Thor was was something that you almost did or yeah. did with for a time. Is there any impulse? Because I mean, Thor Ragnarok is something you've worked yeah. with Tom. That's yeah. out there that they're looking for a director. Is that something that you could imagine um, being interested in? I, I'm actually gravitating to the weirder stuff, man. Still, still, I mean, yeah, yeah. I feel really. I'm, I'm in a stage when. Uh, you know, if I was going to do pyrotechnics, I, they would need to be very intimately related to who I am or what I like. Or your own universe in, in Pac Rim, I guess. Possible. Right? Yeah, yeah. Pac Rim attracted me because we were going to do crazy stuff yeah. and attracts me if, we, if, we, if it gets green lit. But uh, I, feel, I feel like. like uh, Getting weird. Yeah, okay, yeah. good, good. I encourage it. <laughs> Is there an actor you're dying to work with and one in particular that jumps out at you? Do you have. You know, I, 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 having having just seen Revenant and having seen Wolf of Wall Street, I happen to just admire Leo. And you he'll know, go for it. He's uh... well, he, and, and and he has he's a, a big connoisseur of the weird and the kinky cinema. You know, right? We have an affinity for Todd Browning and Freaks. <laughs> All right, huge affinity. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. a he's a Freaks fan. He's a Freaks freak. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay, good to know. Very big and and. You know, I've known his dad longer than I've known him. Yeah. Uh, but his dad uh, uh, used to be a, a, an underground publisher and very involved in underground. And all that history of comics, I can talk with Leo and, or his dad very easily, with George, um, about Crumb, Richard Corbin, uh, you know, Jack Jackson. Right. Yeah. I, I know he, he for a while he was developing like a Twilight Zone movie. I was always, mm -hmm. always intrigued by that mm -hmm. to see what mm -hmm. Leo would do with that. Really interesting. Yeah. Is there, is there um, you know, working with actors over, over the years, do you feel like that was something that took a while to, to did you perfect a technique? Did Cronus versus Crimson Peak, do you think you're working with on set differently? Well, yes. Hopefully. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I, do, I, do think, I do think you learn, I mean, I learned that brevity and, and intelligence in the direction, not complexity. Yeah. You don't want to come out uh, to an actor in the middle of a shooting day with an intellectual concern. Right. You don't want to come and say, remember, this is the moment where the character was uh, is remembering when he was a child. I mean, you come in with an activity. It's with more a, practical. It's just, uh, yes. Yeah, it's, you are thinking of this. You're doing that. Yeah. And a verb. You know, a verb. And, and communicate it in... 10 words or less, 20 words if you must, but don't, don't go into, into a, co a conference with the actor. Yeah. Give him tools, give him trust or give her trust and, 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 and be with them. And, and the other thing that I find important is be next to the camera. Mm -hmm. Don't hide in don't, video village. Don't be don't, in video yeah. village. I yeah. mean, I, I, 
I really, unless it's a complex shot that doesn't allow me to be next to the, I'm, I try not to be in video village. I'm with a little uh, handheld uh, monitor next yeah. to the camera. Well, what happens when an actor is delivering a performance in just a different key, like a totally different kind of key than you need? Like, do you sort of accept it and sort of like, okay, we're going to explore this path? Or can, like at this point, do you feel like you can shift them towards your what you have in your mind, or do you just sort well, of have well, to go with it? The trickiest thing is tone. You know, like like uh, if you're going to deliver if you're going to deliver a certain genre of dialogue, and the actor is making it earnest, it just sounds worse. Yeah. So sometimes you need to to make it lighter or to assume. You know, when you're when you're delivering a, a blade two line, the 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 virus is spreading exponentially. <laughs> they will soon overrun the city. Whatever it is, you want it to be uh, almost pattern, you know, sure. banter. And 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 when they are delivering something, for example, in Crimson Peak, is is sort of a couple of notches overwrought into melodrama. Sure. You want to stay in that. And and the way you correct that, if I may suggest something, is. You don't. It's like shooting in a, a shooting range. If you're not reaching the target, you don't take one step or one step back. You take five steps forward and say, "Try it this other way." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then five not a slight steps adjustment. Back. You say, "No, you go, way you go. Over. Let's try this." And you kind of break it. You say, "Try it this much different, or this much louder, or something." Not not little steps, bigger steps. Do you ever give a line, line reading, or is that something? No, that... I've never done. I mean, I've never done it. Also with my accent, <laughs> it would need to be Treasure of Sierra Madre, you know. Have you ever had the fire actor? Huh? Have you ever had the fire actor? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay. Well, maybe I conveniently forget. <laughs> Except for Ron Perlman on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Perlman was going to be Tom Hiddleston. Right. <laughs> Underrated person on a set who doesn't get the credit they deserve that you are leaning on that like that oh, it makes or breaks a That's of. easy. The worst job in a set is a focus puller. Yeah, of course. It's just because if, if he does minutely his job, off, it's if, if his job is right ninety nine point nine percent of the time, nobody cares. <laughs> if his job is wrong one time, he's a complete uh, moron, and they want to kill him. You know, I think it's the, top, <laughs> the toughest job. <laughs> It's also, people think it's metrics and it's technique. Yeah. It's pure instinct. Yeah. It's pure instinct. It's a beautiful, beautiful craft. And I think it's the director's job to know what all these, what is at stake in all these little jobs. Because, uh, and that's what I, I'm very thankful that I did about a dozen movies and about 20 episodes of TV before directing, working in different capacities. Because... If you want to any day be in charge of a movie set, work on it. Yeah. Because then you know what the people working for you are feeling, you know? When you're on the set um, of this one or, or, or on Pac Rim and these sets are ginormous and it's mm -hmm. insane, are you, are, are you giddy just seeing what you've been able to kind of create and kind of like, this is all here because of me? <laughs> Not yeah. in an ego way, but like no, that no, it's no, like yeah, it's a that, kid in a candy store, I would that imagine. Happened, that happened the first time Rom walked in. As Hellboy, yeah, in full costume and makeup, I was like, you know, we've really, done half the job already. <laughs> I was super happy. I remember on Pacific Rim when we built the compods in a real uh, gimbal to shake them, yeah. and I got the first footage with the cranes going at them, and the, it was a very difficult, technically very difficult movie, and and I thought this is fantastic, yeah. you know, and and it happens on Crimson Peak when we walk into the house. Absolutely. I mean, that, uh, I I really wanted the house to be 
along with the wardrobe, to be an instrument of storytelling, to tell you who they are and sort of evidence their state of mind by showing the house. Sure. You know, and, and the moment we entered the house, I, I felt this is fantastic. You know? uh, going into slight spoiler territory, but there's there's a, a murder in this one that involves kind of like a, a bloody tear that is just a yeah. great uh, image. Is that something that, like, where did, where did that come from? Do you recall? Well, I, I thought it was important uh, to, to, to have a final moment for that character that would that would be emotional. I tried different things. I had lines that didn't work. Mm -hmm. I had a moment between them that didn't work. And I finally said, you know what, let's put the tear. Let's do the tear. Because we were congesting the eye uh, with blood. Yeah. And I said, what if we have a little overflow, you know? What, what's the, is, is, is there a scene in particular in Crimson Peak that is the, is the one that, that brings a huge grin to your face? Yeah, I mean, there's many. I mean, I honestly, this is my third favorite film I've done. And... But I can tell you, if I had to choose from the beauty, I would choose the waltz. The waltz scene in Crimson Peak is, I think, beautiful, gorgeous, yeah. and it, it kind of encapsulates a whole courtship in one single scene, and, and uh, Tom is holding a candle, and it really never went out. They really just stayed up. That's how good a dancer he is. I'm just glad you convinced him to wear the pants for it because his initial instinct wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked for the final product. The, the, the G-string was wrong. <laughs> but but, but, uh, but uh, the other thing that I remember with, I mean, I love the murders, Yeah. but I, I, I think that the most sickening scene for me is when she's feeding, feeding Mia. Yeah. Uh, when Lucille is feeding Mia some porridge. It was a really intense scene and, and, and a very violent scene without anything happening. You know? um, it's, it's a truly great piece of work. I, I'm, I'm dying to see it again, and I, and I, and I will very soon. Um, thanks so much, as always, for stopping by, man. It's, it's, you're one of the best out there, and it's My a pleasure, pleasure, pleasure to talk to you. See you later, guys. Thanks, buddy. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>